Hello, and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. Uh, this is now episode 15, in which we will discuss chapter 13 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, titled Deep Magic from the Dawn of Time. And this is where it gets good. <laughs> uh, last time we looked at uh, Peter's first battle, where he takes the sword that he was given by Father Christmas and uh, utilizes it in war against uh, his first great battle, uh, opposite of one of the witch's wolves, and he wins. And we began there looking at this theme of nobility and honor and bravery and readiness in Peter as a vision of his future kingship, that uh, Aslan takes him up on the hill and shows him Care Paravel on the eastern shore. And right after that, he is given his first battle where he has to execute that power. He has to actualize and activate his role as king, that it's not enough to just have a title, that he must learn to use it and wield it well uh, with bravery and courage. And now in chapter 13, Lewis reverts back to the other soon-to-be king, who is in a much different situation. So Peter is on the high hill with Aslan, seeing Ker Paravel, uh, fresh off of his first victory. And in fact, the last line of the previous chapter is Aslan's line, rise up, Sir Peter Wolfsbane, and whatever happens, never forget to wipe your sword. We get this great vision of Peter's future. One page later, the beginning of chapter 13, Lewis uh, indicates we are moving back to Edmund's story. The first line says, now we must get back to Edmund. And we might be tempted to forget that each of these brothers is a king, that Peter will be King Peter the Magnificent, Edmund will be King Edmund the Just. There are four thrones at Caer Paravel, two of which are to be occupied by these brothers. And yet this moment in the story, their situations couldn't be more opposite of one another. Because what we're about to see in Edmund is the lowest point of his uh, life, the lowest point of the consequences of his sin. And this is a chapter, the deep magic from the dawn of time, where Edmund's treason uh, and his betrayal of Aslan will be at its most apparent. It will be at its clearest. And what the wages of that sin is, uh, what the punishment for a traitor is to be. And this opening paragraph is really significant to see just how Lewis physically describes Edmund in a way that evokes his spiritual state as well. This is the beginning of chapter 13. Now we must get back to Edmund. When he had been made to walk far further than he had ever known that anybody could walk, the witch at last halted in a dark valley, all overshadowed with fir trees and yew trees. Edmund simply sank down and lay on his face, doing nothing at all and not even caring what was going to happen next, provided they would let him lie still. He was too tired even to notice how hungry and thirsty he was. And those lines are loaded. A great deal of descriptive language to evoke the scene that he is in a dark valley overshadowed with fir trees, a, a great sense of ominous darkness and shadow. And of course, the physical descriptions of his exhaustion, that he had been made to walk far further than he thought anybody could walk. And th that's a spiritual statement as well, that Edmund, by virtue of his sin in betraying his family and aligning himself with the white witch, has walked further than he ever thought he might. Um, physically, he's exhausted, but spiritually, he has gone much further than he anticipated. 
that what began as a series of minor concessions, uh, little compromises, sidling up next to the white witch in her Turkish delight, or telling little white lies, as they're so called, or just poking fun at his sister Lucy, what, what began as uh, priggishness or uh, just what he might consider slight mischievousness, uh, has now given birth to uh, sin and death, that he is at a point of physical uh, and spiritual exhaustion, that he's entirely spent as the consequences of his sin. He sinks down and lays on his face, prostrate. And perhaps one of the most alarming sentences is when Lewis says that he uh, was not even caring what was going to happen next, provided that they would let him lie still. This sense of complete abandon and complete exhaustion to his life, where he is on, on the very cusp of giving up entirely. And the last sentence where Lewis says he was too tired even to notice how hungry and thirsty he was, reaches all the way back to the Turkish Delight chapter, where he had offered in sacrifice all of his natural appetites for food, for water, for growth, for nourishment, his hunger and his thirst that is good for him and is indeed part of who he is, part of his creation. He sacrificed all of that for this enchanted Turkish delight. And now, several chapters later, the uh, fruit of that choice is in full bloom and he is too tired to notice how hungry and thirsty he was. He's still ravenously hungry. His natural appetites for good food and for growth and for nourishment is still there, as strong as ever. But now he is much too exhausted, much weaker than he ever thought he would be. And this is a very stark contrast to how we just saw Peter. Peter, who is uh, flourishing into his strength and into his manhood with Aslan, with his sword, the title Sir Peter Wolfsbane, uh, the the uh, conquest, his very first conquest as king, as king in the making. Now we see Edmund at the lowest point in the overshadowed valley, still in the grip of the White Witch. And then the narration moves over to the White Witch and her dwarf having this uh, smaller uh, conversation, this subtler conversation that Ed, we're getting Edmund's perspective here. We can't quite overhear it all that well, but she is talking about killing Edmund, which has been her design all along. And what we had seen leading up to this chapter, which is the witch's desire to thwart the prophecy, she overtly states where uh, she's discussing what must be done with Edmund. And she says to the white, to the dwarf, four thrones in Care Paravel, how if only three were filled, that would not fulfill the prophecy. And which we've been talking about this all along, that stopping the prophecy from happening is the White Witch's primary and most important aim, that she wants to maintain her grip on her kingdom, her so-called kingdom. That she wants to retain power and autonomy. And that is the central dilemma in the lives of every human being. We want to retain autonomy. We want to govern ourselves. We want to be in power. Um, I often tell my students in the classroom that there's no such thing as an empty throne. There's no such thing as an empty throne. Something will occupy the point of highest authority in every single person's life, whether it's God, whether it's themselves, whether it's their fleshly appetites as they fluctuate from day to day. 
uh, whether it's the opinions of their peers, um, whether it's some worldly standard of success or power or fame or influence, something is going to sit in the throne of every person's life. Something is the point of authority. Something speaks loudest in everyone's life. And the white witch is conceding the truthfulness of this prophecy. She recognizes and knows full well the dangerous power of this prophecy. This is the prophecy that has been spoken with authority. And she is not trying to pretend like it doesn't carry weight. She knows it carries weight. And she's just trying to frustrate it. She's trying to uh, obstruct it. She's trying to intervene and and uh, thwart it. And um, is having a difficult time with that. The winter is breaking. Aslan's on the move. The last couple chapters, we've seen her power slowly but surely weakening. And she is lashing out. And killing Edmund may be one of the ways she believes that she can finally put an end to this prophecy. But what she doesn't do, which I think is a very important point for us to take, is that she doesn't try to uh, pretend as though this powerful word, this prophecy spoken long ago, is uh, foolish or is relative. It's not really a, a real prophecy at all. Or, uh, Yeah, it's a prophecy that's been spoken, but it's not really true. She knows it's true. And she knows it's powerful. And I think that's a lesson for us in our day that all too often, many of us are too willing to water down or try to um, remold the words of the prophecies, the words of the law, the words of God, uh, like it's so much Play-Doh on a table. We think we can refashion it according to the trends of our age. We think we can refashion it, reform it to be more uh, palatable, to be more suitable for the current context in which we live. And for all of her evil, which she is evil, the white witch does not concede the power of this prophecy. She is reckoning with it. She knows it's powerful. Four thrones in Care Paravel, she says. How, if only three were filled, that would not fulfill the prophecy. So she's trying to fight against it with all of her strength. And as futile as that is, uh, at least she is able to reckon with the word of the emperor the word of the king, that this is a prophecy that carries much weight for her. So what she and the dwarf decided to do, uh, they wanted, the white witch wanted Edmund to be killed at the stone table. She says that would be the proper way for this traitor to die. And we'll see how that is part of this deep magic that she and Aslan will talk about at the end of the chapter, that all traitors in Narnia belong to her. Blood must be shed. And uh, the spiritual Christian significance of that we will discuss in a moment. So she wanted to slaughter him at the stone table as would be fitting. She uh, fears that they will not make it there in time. So they turn to kill Edmund right there and then. And uh, so they tie Edmund to this tree and he can hear, listen to how Lewis describes this. He can hear the weapon that is being prepared for him. Lewis says this, prepare the victim said the witch. And the dwarf undid Edmund's collar and folded back his shirt at the neck. Then he took Edmund's hair and pulled his head back so that he had to raise his chin. After that, Edmund heard a strange noise. Whiz, whiz, whiz. For a moment, he couldn't think what it was. Then he realized it was the sound of a knife being sharpened. Now, this is a suspenseful moment because the reader also doesn't quite know what's going on. We have seen the power of her wand to transform the living into stone. 
And Edmund has seen that, of course, as well. But in this moment, we don't quite know what this noise is meant to uh, predict. We don't quite know what's going on. And so it, it forces us to be in Edmund's position, which is a good thing for us. Because all too often, we might read these stories and wish to see ourselves as Peter or ourselves as Lucy or... <laughs> most foolish of all, to see ourselves as Aslan. We want to be the heroes of the story. But to see ourselves as Edmund is a really appropriate way of reading the story because we are all, uh, more than we might like to believe, Edmunds. That we are traitors. And we are the ones who lie and betray and satisfy our bellies and our own desires and think of ourselves first. We are as selfish and as cold and callous as Edmund is. So to see this story unfold through his perspective is a really significant move on Lewis's part to help us to empathize with and uh, relate with Edmund, the traitor, by hearing this weapon being fashioned. And the weapon is, of course, the stone knife that the White Witch will brandish um, when Aslan goes to the stone table in a few chapters. Incidentally enough, it reappears in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader when, um, when Edmund and Lucy and Eustace and everybody arrive at Ramandu's island and they see the, the banqueting table with the three sleepers under a spell. On that table, along with all of the food and everything, is the stone knife from the White Witch. It's pretty interesting that it will reappear later on. But at this point... Uh, Aslan's army, uh, all of the living animals he had sent in the last chapter, arrive to reclaim Edmund, that he does not die at this point, and they take Edmund. But incidentally enough, we are not quite sure what has happened to the witch and the dwarf. There's a melee. Uh, again, we're in Edmund's perspective, so everything is confusing and loud, and there's a lot of chaos and voices as uh, Edmund is saved. And then we find out what happened to the witch and to the dwarf. And we get this really telling detail from Lewis. What has happened is that, that the witch has camouflaged herself and the dwarf to appear as an old tree stump for the dwarf and a fair-sized boulder for herself. So in her dark magic, she um, disguises themselves, her and the dwarf, as a stump and a boulder. And listen to how Lewis describes this. If you had gone on looking, you would gradually have begun to think there was something odd about both the stump and the boulder. And next you would have thought that the stump did look really remarkably like a little fat man crouching on the ground. And if you had watched long enough, you would have seen the stump walk across to the boulder and the boulder sit up and begin talking to the stump. For in reality, the stump and the boulder were simply the witch and the dwarf. For it was part of her magic that she could make things look like what they aren't. That is a very significant detail of who this white witch is and more broadly, what evil is, according to Lewis. Listen to that again. It was part of her magic that she could make things look like what they aren't. And of course, this deception re reaches back to the chapter with the Turkish delight where she could make it look like it would be satisfying. She could make the Turkish delight look like it, it was appealing and good and nourishing and wonderful. And yet it was a hook. And back then we discussed how uh, with sin and temptation, the bait always hides the hook. That temptation is the gloss. Temptation is the enticing, uh, seemingly delicious element of sin that makes us reach out and grab it. 
But of course, the sin itself is the hook, the thing that gets into our hearts and corrodes it from the inside and completely warps our ability to see correctly. It's like in Isaiah 5, uh, Isaiah 5.20, where it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. There is a woe on those who call good evil and evil good, who switch. Um, Romans 1 talks about those who have uh, replaced natural desires for unnatural desires. They have replaced the creator for the creation. That there is a curse and there is a distinct and, and serious problem on those who make things look like what they aren't. And this, this is what lying is. This is what deceit is. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul talks about how Satan appears as an angel of light. That uh, he appears as that which is good. He appears as that which is beautiful. And the white witch has done the same for Edmund. She appeared to be a good queen. One who wanted to train him up in his kinghood. She appeared to be uh, one who would work alongside the prophecy. Because Edmund will be king. And she looked like an agent of uh, help in that process. And yet she turned out to be disastrous. Several passages in scripture speak to this exact same reality. Uh, Psalm 55, 21 says this, the words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. And also in Proverbs 5, 1 through 6 uh, says this, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey and her mouth is smoother than oil. That in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. Lest you ponder her path of life. Her ways are unstable. You do not know them. You don't know them. Her lips drip honey. She speaks sweetly to you. And this is the same as the siren song in Homer's Odyssey, when Odysseus is sailing past the siren's song, um, that it sounds beautiful. It sounds attractive. It sounds lovely. And yet it is a death. It is a murderous song. And in Proverbs 5, 4, where uh, he mentions Wormwood, this is the same as in the screw tape letters. Uh, where that entire novel that Lewis wrote, Screwtape and Wormwood, are discussing ways in which they can entrap their patient, entrap the man, by seducing and enticing and um, reconfiguring something to make it seem good. And of course, this is the dilemma all the way back in Eden, where the serpent seduces Eve. Did God really say, is it all that bad? And in, when we get to the magician's nephew, we'll see how Jadis does this with Diggory and the apples in the garden there, the silver apple. Uh, she tries to entice him to see it as good. And so this line is a cornerstone line for all of the chronicles about what exactly the nature of evil is, according to Lewis. It was part of the white witch's magic that she could make things look like what they aren't. She could make things look good when they are not. She can make things look true when they are false. She can make things look beautiful when they are ugly. At last, uh, we're back to Edmund when he wakes up from his faint. And uh, he is reunited with his family. And we get this beautiful passage of forgiveness from Aslan, where Edmund and Aslan meet for the first time. 
and they go off by themselves. And listen to how Lewis describes this. As soon as they had breakfasted, they all went out, and there they saw Aslan and Edmund walking together in the dewy grass, apart from the rest of the court. There is no need to tell you, and no one ever heard what Aslan was saying, but it was a conversation which Edmund never forgot. As the others drew nearer, Aslan turned to meet them, bringing Edmund with him. Here is your brother, he said, and there is no need to talk to him about what has passed. Edmund shook hands with each of the others and said to each of them in turn, I'm sorry. And everyone said, that's all right. And with that, the matter is settled. Now, we don't ever hear anybody bring this up against Edmund ever again. Now, Edmund in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader will tell Eustace uh, after Eustace is undragoned by Aslan, which is a similar circumstance. Uh, Edmund will tell Eustace about how he had been a traitor in Narnia uh, many years ago, referencing this scene. But in this moment, uh, Peter and Susan and Lucy forgive him. And they say, that's all right. And he apologizes to each of them in turn. Edmund is truly contrite here. He is repentant, finally. But the most beautiful scene is the one where he and Aslan are walking together in the dewy grass, apart from the rest of the court. This is the way in which Christ wishes to forgive us one-on-one, that he wants a, a private, intimate relationship with us where our sins can be forgiven. Now, there is merit in, in confession and making things right, but here we see Aslan not shouting at Edmund. We see Aslan not killing Edmund for his betrayal. Later in the chapter, Aslan will tell the White Witch that Edmund's offense was not against her, which is true. Edmund's offense is against him and against the deep magic from the dawn of time. Uh, His offense was against God. Uh, And yet Aslan takes this opportunity upon meeting Edmund not to um, berate him, not to hold his sinfulness over his head, but to walk with him in the dewy grass. Such an Edenic image there. To forgive him and then to present him to his siblings restored. Here is your brother, and there is no need to talk to him about what is past. That the past Edmund is gone, and now Aslan is presenting the new Edmund, forgiven, restored, and redeemed. It's like what Paul says in Corinthians, that the old man has passed away, and all things have been made new. Uh, A few paragraphs later, when the white witch approaches, she wishes to approach Aslan, Uh, to claim Edmund's blood as a traitor. Um, Aslan sends a couple of leopards out with the wolf to go bring the white witch. And and Susan and Lucy wonder if that would have been a a wise thing to do. And Peter responds by saying, it'll be all right. He wouldn't send them if it weren't. And this is a beautiful statement of Aslan as well, where the same language is used in forgiveness, where Peter, Susan, and Lucy forgive Edmund by saying, that's all right to now the sureness and the sovereignty of Aslan in sending out the leopards to the white witch and her camp, Peter says, it will be all right. He wouldn't send them if it weren't. That everything will be all right in Aslan. He's on the move. That though we don't know how everything will be all right, and indeed the reader at the end of this chapter doesn't know how Aslan will make everything well, he won't work against the emperor's magic, but we do get these inklings from Peter and from the other children that it will be all right, that there is a faith in Aslan that is 
certain in things being all right, although we don't quite see things all right yet. It's like in Hebrews where the writer says, uh, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, to Christ, but we see Christ. And that is an important combination that we do not yet see how everything will be all right. Indeed, right now, you look outside, <laughs> look at the news. Everything doesn't seem all right. And yet we can have this firm, unyielding trust in Aslan and in Christ that it will be all right. Aslan wouldn't send them if it weren't all right. That we are to be brave, we are to meet the danger, but we are to meet it with a sureness of faith in who we are serving. And then we get the uh, confrontation between the witch and Aslan. Lewis says it was the oddest thing to see those two faces, the golden face and the dead white face, so close together. Not that the witch looked Aslan exactly in his eyes. Mrs. Beaver particularly noticed this. You have a traitor there, Aslan, said the witch. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund, but Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he'd been through and after the talk he'd had that morning. He just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the, what the witch said. This is an incredible moment with Edmund, where the witch has come to claim the sinner, that um, what Edmund has done, according to the deep law, the deep magic, deserve, he deserves to die on the stone table. And we'll talk about what that deep magic is in just a moment. But this moment with Edmund is really, uh, really sweet and beautiful, where Lewis says Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all he'd been through. And after the talk he'd had that morning, he just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch said. This is what forgiveness and repentance looks like, that he is considering Aslan. He's looking to Aslan. All of the hopes of his life are hinging on Aslan. And so he is looking with full trust and full confidence in him. Because Edmund knows that he deserves to die. Edmund knows that he's done what is wrong. He is fully repentant here. And he is uh, contrite and broken over his sin. And rather than try to make excuses or rather than try to justify what he's done or butt in and interrupt in the conversation, he got past thinking about himself and he just went on looking at Aslan. It didn't seem to matter what the witch said. What a great gesture and posture on how to deal with the voice of evil reminding you and accusing you of your sin is to just look at Aslan, continue to look to Jesus. It's like uh, in Psalm 27, where the psalmist says, one thing I ask to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. To look at Hebrews talks about looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Here, Edmund is looking to Aslan, that if Edmund is going to live, it is because Aslan will have done something. He has no recourse Otherwise, there is nothing that can save him, that the white witch has a claim on him, and she has ensnared him with her Turkish delight, and he belongs to her. And so he's looking to Aslan, his one and only hope. Well, said Aslan, his offense was not against you. The white witch says, have you forgotten the deep magic? And this deep magic is a really important. Gene Edward Veith and... Um, Donald Glover and some people who've written in Narnia have referred to the dichotomy between the deep magic from the dawn of time 
and the deeper magic from before the dawn of time, which will be referenced in a couple chapters. Aslan talks about the deeper magic from before the dawn of time that the White Witch knew nothing about. Uh, several of these writers talk about the deep magic being uh, a representation of the law and of justice and the deeper magic being a picture of mercy, being a picture of the gospel, which the white witch knew nothing about. It's no accident that the deep magic from the dawn of time is engraved into the stone table as this symbolic reference to the stone tablets Moses brings when he descends from the mountain. That the deep magic is the law that requires bloodshed for sinners. This is Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. That is the law. And there's nothing that can break that law. Um, Aslan asks the white witch to recite the deep magic from the dawn of time to tell him about it. And she says, the human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property. And then later on, she says this, Fool, said the witch with a savage smile. Do you really think your master can rob me of my rights by mere force? He knows, referencing Aslan, the deep magic better than that. He knows that unless I have blood, as the law says, all Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. And when she says this, Aslan responds, it is very true. I do not deny it. Now, this is the remarkable um, Christian framework that Lewis is laying out, that the deep magic from the dawn of time is not something that Aslan can just wish away. This is something that Aslan has chosen in his character to abide by. This is the way things are. And Jesus is no different, that Jesus cannot just forgive sins and and react against the way in which the law of Romans 6.23 is set up. The wages of sin is death, period. All sinners must die. And there's nothing that God could do to um, sidestep that and remain a consistent, good, just, and holy God. A just and holy God must punish sin. That's why Adam fell in the garden, that the wages of his sin is death. God's law works according to God's law. And Aslan's law here, the, the deep magic from the dawn of time is no different. It is engraved into the stone table. She said, it is written into the scepter of the emperor beyond the sea. It is a good law. God's holiness is good holiness. And God is not going to abandon his character as a just and holy God just to uh, brush our sinfulness under the, rug, under the rug and pretend it didn't happen. Forgiveness must come at a cost. It must come at a cost. Doug Wilson says, Christ did not die that you might live. He died that you might die, and he lives that you might live. All sinners must die. What Jesus' death and resurrection does is give sinners the, the reality of death with the prospect of resurrection. Even those that Christ has redeemed must still die a physical death. But what Christ's promise and what the gospel is, is that Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. That if we die in Christ, we will be resurrected in Christ. If we die outside of Christ, we die uh, a spiritual death. We die eternally. 
And so this is crucial to understanding this moment in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the, the very climax of the novel where Aslan and the White Witch have agreed upon uh, what Lewis ends off this chapter with, this mysterious uh, deal that they make. We don't understand the details of it until the next chapter. But the deep magic from the dawn of time is a fixed reality, just as much as the law of God, the law of justice in Romans 6.23 is a fixed reality. The wages of sin is death. It is the law. Susan asks Aslan, she says, can't we, can't we do something about the deep magic? Isn't there something you can work against it? And Aslan's response is harrowing. He says, work against the emperor's magic, said Aslan, turning to her with something like a frown on his face. And nobody ever made that suggestion to him again. This idea of trying to circumvent the law of justice is is unfathomable. Aslan cannot work contrary to the emperor's magic. Jesus says this in the gospels. He says, I do my father's will. And so there is a holiness code to the law of justice that is set out in this chapter that functions a great deal like uh, the holiness code that God had written all throughout the Old Testament. Sin must be punished. What the beauty is, is that rather than Edmund incur the punishment for his sin, what we find out in the chapters to come is that Aslan has chosen to incur that punishment himself, that he will die on the stone table to satisfy the deep magic and to satisfy the law in Aslan, in Edmund's place. At the very end of this chapter, the reader doesn't quite know that that's true yet. All we know is that Edmund has been um, freed. Aslan says, I have settled the matter. She has renounced the claim on your brother's blood. We don't know how Aslan has settled the matter, but we matter, but we do know that he has settled it. The white witch says, how do I know the promise will be kept? And Aslan roars at her. It's a beautiful way to end the chapter, but it's foreboding to see the title of the next chapter, which is the triumph of the witch, that it seems as though in Aslan exchanging his place for Edmund's place on the stone table, that he will satisfy the law of the stone table. He will satisfy the deep magic himself. It seems to be a victory for the witch. Um, but as is certainly true with Aslan, um, there is more to him than meets the eye. And there is a deeper magic from before the dawn of time that is greater than the deep magic of the law. And that deeper magic from before the dawn of time is mercy. And mercy triumphs over the law. So thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next time as we look at chapter 14 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe titled The Triumph of the Witch. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.